0: Right. <laughs> all right. Hello, Cachimbonas. Uh, today I'm very honored to have Mark Tissog Gonzalez, who is a law professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law, to talk about something that's been circulating in the news and there's been all kinds of misconceptions about, which is critical race theory and its origins. So before getting into that, just wanted to say Mark Dissog, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast today.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So I wanted to ask first, can you just give us a definition of what critical race theory is and how it originated?
1: I would love to. Well, as it suggests, critical race theory is uh, a set of ideas that attempt to understand how race and racism have um, come into being and been reinforced in the United States in particular but also globally. And the origination is from law scholars and law student activists who together created this discourse. And so the particular focus in the origins were how the law helps to create and maintain racism. Mm -hmm.
0: And there are various accounts of this, right? So one history that I've heard is that Critical race theory is kind of a response to the shortcomings of critical legal theory, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. The critical legal studies movement, um, let's say of the 1970s, became uh, sort of an influential wave in legal academia. And at least two outgrowths um, of that were in direct critique of it. So critical legal studies, you know, tended to be dominated by white men, mm-hmm. uh, straight white men, cisgendered men. And so legal feminism really comes out of that in part, and then critical race theory, you know, both centering um gender and/or race relations, and thereby creating new insights.
0: Right. And then you also mentioned that legal realism, something that came about in the early 20th century, is also Important to contextualize
1: critical race theory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the point of view of, of Latina and Latino critical race theory, which also, you know, evolves out of out of the original critical race theory and the workshops. You know, we have um, a sense of lineage that goes back to the twenties, let's say, when so-called legal realism developed as a critique of a kind of legal formalism of an effort to make the law something like um, a deductive science. Mm-hmm. Where if you start with certain precepts, then you can determine, you know, what should be the correct rule of law in a given situation. The legal realist said, you know, that might sound good in theory to some, but it doesn't really help explain how um, case law is made, how judges adjudicate, et cetera.
0: Right. I think one of the kind of common, you know, phrases that summarizes the ideologies that you know something like what a judge eats for breakfast kind of influence what decision is made and it's kind of it's called legal realism because it's a perspective that uh, attempts to decipher you know kind of the actual motivations for judicial decision making and i think it's much closer to how things actually happen in reality, as opposed to, as you say, people who try and claim that there's they're abiding by some kind of formulaic application of some ideology. You know, and I think that transfers out even to the current Supreme Court justices and or the late Scalia. You know, people who talk about originalism and applying it objectively when there's other things that play there.
1: Right. No, absolutely. I mean, hopefully, it's not just what you ate up for breakfast, but, you know, beneath the <laughs> black roads <laughs> are human beings, right? They're embodied. They have identities that have been shaped um, just like the rest of us. So they, you know, this really reminds me of the of the comment that Justice the Mayor made when she was a judge, you know, at the, right. the Law Journal Symposium, um, where she was reflecting on particular sort of story she was telling. And then the soundbite became, you know, I would hope that a wise Latina with all of her experiences would come to a better decision than someone who did not have those experiences. Right.
0: And she got a ton of flack for that, actually. And she, because I, I guess there was this discomfort with her naming her identity and then also naming how identity gives you a frame with which to look at the world and the kind of really critical perspective that she brings to the court, and I mean i I love her for that for for standing for that, but i know, I know it was difficult for her because she had to walk it back a bit because there was this other narrative that developed about I, I don't I'm not quite sure, but yeah, how how did you react to that that kind of backlash to her saying that?
1: Yeah, no. I raise it. I raise it in part because, as I understand, you know, it it is a waypoint in this ongoing effort from um, certain individuals. We could just call them associated with, you know, the far right and/or mm-hmm. their think tanks that have decided that it is useful to claim that variously racialized peoples are causing division. Instead. Mm-hmm. Of allowing us to think, really, the ideology of white supremacy is what has created a hierarchy of so-called races, and that mm-hmm. this occurred through a colonial process of genocide and settlement and slavery. Mm-hmm. So you know, when when Justice Bajore's you know comment was taken out of context, uh, it was. Frustrating, but also very predictable that that would occur. And, you Mm -hmm. know, the national discourse at the time, um, say, articles in the New York Times or even the um, confirmation hearing before the senators, you know, really promulgated a mainstream understanding that it is the colored people who are causing the division instead of allowing people to recognize that it's the masters who create a colored cast in order to keep these different people separate Mm -hmm. so that they can't overthrow the plantation. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you for that. So what do legal scholars hope to achieve with critical race theories and these methodologies and pedagogies and praxis?
1: Well, the hope really is to transform the system of law so that it actually provides its promise of equal justice for all. And in part, it is to shift the power relations that the law, instead of serving, I'll just again use the same language of the side of the masters or the bosses or the corporations, you know, the billionaires, the 1%, whatever phrase you like, will instead adjudicate fairly between natural persons and not, you know, bring them below right. the corporations that, you know, were the initial um, agents of the of the British crown, right? The East India Company and these various mm-hmm. other phrases we may or may not remember from our history classes. These were corporate entities that were formed in order to make more efficient the colonization and exploitation of the so-called new world. So critical race theory first recognizes that that has always been occurring. And second, it decides to contest that in its own terms. I mean, another way to think of critical race theory is that after a certain third world liberation movement, say in US higher education, um, enabled people to graduate from their undergraduate institutions then you started to have a critical mass of people that went to law school of peoples of color that went to law school, and you know eventually some of them became mm-hmm. law professors, and then they were really able to um, create a new discourse based upon the experiences of the communities with which they identify.
0: Thank you for that history. I think that's really important, and I think you first stated that the goal of critical race theory and Those who scram to it is to bring the law to a place where it's, you know, equitable and act and truly create some form of justice. And I think it's that's what's a bit ironic about kind of the uproar from the far right because you know this isn't an anarchist project. This is actually. A vision that ultimately still is operating within the US legal system.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have yet to meet anybody who, you know, affiliates with critical race theory who credibly does anything clandestine. You know, <laughs> these are people who have <laughs> yeah. credit cards and mortgages and they have debt, just like everybody else. But they use their education. We use our education to critically apprehend. You know, what is really going on? So yesterday, for example, the Supreme Court of the United States, its six so-called conservative justices overturned a regulation in California that derives from the 1975 California Agricultural Relations, uh, Agriculture Relations Act, Labor Relations Act. So this law, this 1975 law was a great win of the United Farm Workers in their, in their heyday of La Causa. And mm-hmm. it, in part, allowed union organizers to go upon growers' property, to go upon the land where workers basically either live or are going to be for the majority of the workday. And one hour before the work shift starts mm-hmm. and one hour during lunch and one hour after, an organizer could be present and try mm-hmm. to introduce workers to the notion of let's, let's make a union um, happen in this particular shop. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States just yesterday said that that constitutes a physical taking, a per se taking, which it makes you wonder. So does that mean it was unconstitutional, you know, 46 years ago or just, you know, today in terms of remedy? Um, But also it's a, a patent distortion because a physical taking is permanent. Like if the city says, I'm going to take, you know, your house because I'm going to make a freeway, or I guess that'd be the state. Or if it says, you know, there's going to be a right of way over your property, mm-hmm. it's a permanent right of way. Right. So, you know, there are lots of dumb jokes about lawyers being bad at math, but you know, <laughs> 120 days, three hours, that's 360 hours. And there are so many more hours. In a year, 365 times 24 is something like 8,760. And so claiming this to be a per se physical taking should fly in the face of basic math. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, six of the justices decided that two plus two equals five, which Orwell taught us that um, that's terrible, that's torturous.
0: Yeah. Can you actually break down how they explain that as a taking? What the, what does that imply? Who, who owns the t- people's time? Well,
1: the idea is that the realty um, and then for the owner of that of that land has a right to exclude uh-huh. anyone. Right, for any reason or no okay, reason, yes. provided it's not open to the public, in which case it might be a place of public accommodation that under the 1964 Civil right. Rights Act you know, has, has various classes that you're not supposed to exclude. But in the case of growers, the notion is, you know, if I own this, this land, if I own these fields, if my corporation owns this, then I should be able to say, the only people who are allowed to come here are my workers. And I'm giving them a very limited license to be here. They're here to pick, you know. they're here to harvest, they're here to plant, mm-hmm. et cetera, weed, all the different tasks that are needed. So you know, knowing that that was the case, that um, in the early days of the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, which eventually became the UFW, the organizers of that, right? the most famous of which, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Larry Itliong, various other individuals, they recognize you've got to organize mm-hmm. farm workers in the mm-hmm. fields themselves. And if you're being um, threatened with trespass actions that the sheriff is all too willing to enforce, right. you know, if you can only wait on the public highway or the dusty, you know, side of it and try to, you know, talk to workers as they right. come in to work and as they leave, well, you're never really going to be able to organize. And so, in effect, that's an unfair labor practice to allow private owners to exclude organizers or to, you know, punish workers for talking to their fellow workers, you know, on the on the site. And so, under the L- A-R- ALRA, um, a regulation provided for this, you know, rarely limited form of access. And okay. and the court could have just said this is a regulatory taking. Um, but instead it went, you mm. know, to this other level of this is a per se in itself, it's a physical taking. And, and that's just a classic example, I think really going back to the earlier point of just because you claim it doesn't make it really so. You know, the legal realism, or like I just tried to suggest, the math says, no, that is not a permanent taking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but now we have, you know, Uh, supreme court opinion that says otherwise
0: so can you explain the difference between a regulatory taking and a physical taking and what the implications of both of those would have been if it had been one or the other it's they're saying that it's a physical taking so what would have been the result if they had said that it was a regulatory taking for example
1: yeah i mean not not to get into too much of the the technical part if that's if that's um You know, sort of the
0: audience loves it. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. All right. Good to know. Okay. So, so, so then let's take one step back. In law school, everybody has to learn Mm -hmm. torts and in particular, the tort of negligence. And so, you know, thinking back, Mm -hmm. negligence, you know, someone has Mm -hmm. a duty that they've breached, which has caused harm to another person. A classic example might be a car accident. Right. Well, within the doctrine, there's a notion of negligence per se mm-hmm. or negligence in itself. And here we have a law or regulation that is particularly designed right. to reduce or stop the uh, conduct that we're concerned about. So, for example, a stoplight. If you run a red stoplight, you have per se done negligence. You have Reach the duty that we all owe to each other, which is not to, like, crash into each other. Right. Okay, so shifting out of that basic notion of what this per se suggestion or this per se doctrine sort of means, um, for a physical taking, they're saying that it's a taking in and of itself when the government, say, says we're going to condemn your home and put, you know, the freeway through. Which example I use, of course, because when the federal highway projects came through, although on the one hand, we now are able to drive them, drive on them, you know, on the other hand, they destroyed quite often, you know, communities of color and or communities where there was racial integration happening and class integration, Uh, Chinatown or, you know, the barrios or the ghettos, whatever you want to call them, but really Mm -hmm. these thriving communities were like cloven in half. So, when the Supreme Court says it's a physical taking, it's a per se taking, then the party that that has had that happen to it does not have to prove as much. Whereas if it's a regulatory taking, then we have to get more into the weeds in terms of the causality and the damages in particular.
0: Mm, got it. I, I'm a bit troubled that this really is infringing on people's First Amendment rights and their their right to unionize specifically. And so does this mean that union organizers don't usually engage in farm work themselves? Like, Because usually union organizers would join a workplace and try and salt the workplace to get it unionized. So... But is that that different in the context of farm
1: workers? It's a good question. I mean, part of what's at issue here is that because of the UFW creating this legislative compromise with the state that created the California Agricultural Labor Relations Act, um, there was a particular regulation that provided a legal right for any union organizer to go there. So you could be. A worker, you know, in the fields who who was um, deciding to become sort of a uh, a lead in the union cause there, or you could be, you know, someone who was not actually physically mm-hmm. working on that particular parcel of land, but instead, you know, were sort of traveling around. And so this allows for really a more, I'll call it, efficient kind of unionization efforts, right? If you can have people who are skilled and experienced. In organizing, who can go from mm-hmm. from place to place and try to develop local leadership on the on the site? Whereas, you know, quite often, if you are attempting to conduct union organizing activities on a job site, um, your employer is going to figure a way to terminate you sooner than later, and then you know you won't be able to do that there. Right. We could think of the Amazon warehouse workers like a very recent example.
0: Yeah, this is is just another troubling trend in anti-unionization sentiment and law and policy.
1: Absolutely. And I I mentioned it in part because this is a great example, I think, of how, you know, from a critical race theory perspective or a, a Latino critical legal theory perspective, you know, we would take into account both the social conditions of the racialized workforce you know, that is culture labor. Right. And we would look to the history that created this, you know, statute and then the regulation beneath it. And then we would be able to also go through the judge's opinion or the justice's opinions and, you know, see where the precedent does not command the result, but instead where quite often, like I've just tried to suggest, the way that the precedent should reasonably be applied the facts on hand would make you say this is not a physical per se taking
0: right right
1: so there's great power in that you know when you when we're able to um to paraphrase the audrey lord quote right to to at least know how to use the tools of the master right um and then similarly um folks what i what i've been calling on the far right you know know that and so there are think tanks and And their efforts have been to win the war um, of position, right? To use the Gramscian term. Um, We don't want to fight a particular skirmish on this particular hill. They want to choose the particular hill, the particular county, the, the battlefield's terrain. So if that battlefield can be analogized to ideas, you know, they want to control what you can think. And by trying to outlaw critical race theory um, by trying to outlaw uh, racial conscious affirmative action. The function is to make people from marginalized, exploited, impoverished communities either not be able to get a higher education or not be able to get one that is critical of the contradictions of the existing society. And are you know kind right. of imbued with a motivation to transform. Yeah. Can
0: you break down how critical race theory has been centered or marginalized in the curriculum of law schools today? Also, clarify that this critical race theory actually isn't taught in K through twelve, contrary to the far right's narrative, as you're saying. Yeah,
1: I mean it's a, it's a curious thing, you know to to be to be at a moment in life where. I've seen some of these struggles, you know, come up multiple times by virtue of age and and sort of having mm-hmm. paid attention and and getting legal education and, and you know all that. Um, so so critical race theory, if it starts in legal education as a sort of insurgent movement, it's originally quite marginalized. And then shortly thereafter, you know, a series of um, very influential uh, law review articles get, get placed in, in pretty fancy law reviews. And so people take note. So, um, you know, people who are often referred to in this sort of foundation of critical race theory you would start with someone like Derek Bell, you know, Richard Delgado, Mari Matsuda, um, Kimberly mm-hmm. Crenshaw is often put in there as well. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. one of the student activists at at Harvard, you know, with with Bell at the time. Um, later on, people like Cheryl Harris and her whiteness is property. Um, Frenshaw's concept of intersectionality, you know, all of these right. then suddenly become popularized for a moment, and 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 people start paying attention. Um, almost immediately thereafter, there's a hard reaction to that. And so probably the most um, famous of the people to critique critical race theory or to try to rebut it would be uh, the federal judge and, uh, and former professor, um, you know, Judge Posner.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> what did he have to say? But he, that guy comments on everything, <laughs> I swear.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. He's,
0: he came up recently as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's a public figure uh, in uh-huh. his own right. So these critiques go go in many ways, but they basically say something like, "This is disunifying. Um, this this discourse um, actually is like a kind of tribalism mm. that will make America more and more fragmented." So you know, uh-huh. them, absolutely, I'm very familiar because they're basically just being repeated right,
0: right. now. Right, it's like balkanization yeah. of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's an ongoing culture war to use the concept. I
0: know, this is like the 90s all over again.
1: That um, the Republican Party put forward in 92, right? They talked about um, in their national convention being engaged in a culture war. And Justice Scalia uh, took it sort of a step further in one of his opinions and talked about a culture comp, right? Mm -hmm. Using the German and referring, I guess, to a Bismarckian sort of um, moment in history. So so these things are familiar because they're part of a a long strategy and quite literally people can just um, look back on their old playbooks and say, why don't we try this one again? Uh, The last thing I'll say about the original critiques of critical race theory um, is that sometimes they would even go so far as to say not only is this anti-intellectual because you're trying to create a new orthodoxy, but this is anti-Semitic because you're excluding or you're lumping in Jewish people into into white people overall. So, you know, as the last comment, you know, I think suggests, this this got a little bit heated, right? And so, you know, who wants to have that um, label put on them? So um, then I would say... You see that curricularly, the law schools, some of them have critical race theory courses, um, but but it really doesn't become like a foundational part of law school, right? You don't have to take critical race theory or race in American law even, but you do have to take torts and property and contracts and civil procedure and criminal law, all the sort of basic courses. Nevertheless, critical race theory, lacrit, you know, critical Asian American legal studies, queer legal studies, feminist legal theory, all these courses are available, but typically as seminars or other specialty courses. And maybe they're not taught as often as you would like as a student of law. Um, maybe the person who was teaching them, you know, is overwhelmed or they move on. And so last year, um, we really saw this explosion, right, after um, the murder of George Floyd, tens of thousands of, of us were in the streets um, and a handful of us were in the law schools. And so a group of African-American women deans created a statement and they pu- published that and calls for anti-racism within the law school curriculum became louder than I've ever heard. And we're now in a moment where we're going to see, you know, what law schools have actually implemented this. You know, we've long talked about how do you bring the insights of critical legal theory, critical race theory, uh-huh.
0: legal feminism,
1: etc., into all the classes. Um, and of course, on on the far right side, this is has nothing to do with the law, and so it should not be included. It should be excluded or marginalized. But, you know, for those of you who take um, uh, any kind of course in property or property law, you know, the very first case that typically is taught and probably should be taught is Johnson versus Maddentonch. And to not be able to talk about race or colonization or colonialism within the context of the Supreme Court case that establishes the indigenous people's you know, uh, Native American nations do not have the right to alienate property, but are instead um, domestic dependent, you know, upon the United States is like a great disservice to the students. To think, and you know, that's an 1823 case, but its precedent is relied on in cases, you know, in this decade, whether that's in Puerto Rico, where, you know, the insular cases get referenced, insular cases directly quote from Johnson um, in order to sort of justify the continuing uh, colonial status of the island and its peoples, or whether that's in, you know, cases that involve now federally recognized tribes, say like in New York, there's a particular example where there's these contests between state taxation and, and... and uh, indigenous land, you know, tribal sovereignty. So, so these are these are live, and hopefully, we will be able to say maybe in a year that a substantial number of the law schools have done something in this direction to integrate these insights. I just noted that there was also a there was a resolution amongst the ABA for accreditation standards to potentially try to you know make this more. Um, obviously vital for law schools to provide if they're going to educate students in this 21st century, you know, multiracial, multiethnic, highly diverse, and highly conflictual society.
0: Right. Yeah, I think it's really critical and long overdue for law schools to integrate some of uh, some kind of anti-racist curriculum into their schools. And I, part of the reason why I think the far rights narrative is so absurd is because as you've outlined, critical race theory, you know, had kind of, um, uh, had a moment in, in legal academia, but has by and large been marginalized. And I have my own experience where, you know, at Stanford, we had to, the students had to petition actively the administration to get a two week primer course from a professor who didn't identify as a critical race theorist, just as a quote, sympathizer. Hmm. And so to, so to think that, you know, this is like overtaking K through 12 education is just so ludicrous when, you know, we have, we're just in such a different place in law school where this originated, you know, like, at Stanford there's a professor that just refuses to white guy that just refuses to stop saying the n word <laughs> like it's that is really where we are mm. and you know like it's mm. astounding to me that somebody can graduate from Stanford law school never having taken or learned about the 14th amendment because the constitutional the constitutional law focused on the commerce clause mostly and you, there, you had to take a whole separate class, mm-hmm. but it wasn't required. And so somebody could graduate. You definitely yeah. don't need to ha- you have ever taken critical race theory. You might not even be offered at your law school. And actually, people are graduating, not even learning about the 14th Amendment.
1: Yeah, that's terrible. And um, unfortunately, we also have to say that's by design. Because as a member of the faculty, mm-hmm. if we've decided that equal rights or um, constitutional rights is is a mere collective, um, then that's the result that you've just described. We will have students right. who think of the constitution with this glaring absence, you know, radical reconstruction and those reconstruction amendments were an effort to do this transformation. And, um, you know, they were checked almost at the beginning with the state action adoption You know, the Supreme Court says, um, this says no state shall, and therefore we're going to hold you to that word. And the kinds of racial terror that was allowed by that opinion includes, quite literally, um, the Ku Klux Klan violently assaulting and maiming and murdering people. And that was not a violation under this um, tortured interpretation, despite the Civil War being so recent. Because it didn't involve state action; as was for private
0: action. Right. So. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I think it's super important to recognize all of the all of the, the the monopoly of violence that that the state has, and I, I think you know I really appreciated you bringing up the sheriff's role in busting unions because uh, now the idea of a police union it is so strange to me because historically and now, it is through the police force that unions are busted. (laughs) And it is, yeah, I just appreciate you bringing that up. And I think it's just very important to think about in this moment.
1: Absolutely, no, these are the contradictions and the legal education um, enables you to understand or apprehend them and more and more in the complexity with which they exist and then to try to contest them or try to change them. And so, you know, um, the current moral panic against so-called critical race theory that the radical right, that the far right, and unfortunately that others who are influenced, right, by that discourse, they don't yeah. necessarily identify that. But if you hear it often enough, you know, what a propaganda campaign attempts to do is to make you think or channel your thoughts in a certain direction. And so, I mean, I was reading... Quote by one of these operatives who was saying, You know, our goal is to make the very term toxic so that when someone hears it, they think, Oh, that's a terrible thing. That's a bad thing. This would be like, You know, does anyone want to be called a terrorist before the T word? I guess there's a mm-hmm. C word, right? Communist or that anarchist. Mm-hmm. You know, these are labels that can be used to, to end discourse, to end discussion. Now, regarding K through 12, I mean, there's another really interesting aspect to this, which is, you know, in 2010, when Arizona passed the the show me your papers law, it also enacted HB 2281. I'm recalling it correctly. And Uh um, as you probably recall or know, you know, this was an attempt expressly to destroy, to outlaw a Mexican American studies program that Tucson Unified School District had which had transformed graduation rates from like 50% to like 90% with extraordinary matriculation of college. And the origins of that um, program are actually from a school to segregation decree within that same jurisdiction. So somewhere like 97, you get this, um, this decree finalized, you know, that year and the next Mexican American Studies program and other ethnic studies programs get created. Um, they have great results. A uh, bunch of people, you know, graduate, a bunch of people go to college. Um, they start getting socially active in various ways. As the young adults, they are. Eventually, you have a moment where actually Dolores Huerta is giving a a speech before the program, and she said something um, to the effect of, you know, Republican politicians in your state are working against your interests. And um, you know that should not be a controversial statement. It's, it's factually verifiable mm-hmm. uh-huh. see what their interests are and then you know take a look at the political legislation that that state has been putting forward in that, in that time period. But um, it gets used as a, as a cause. These programs are teaching hate. These programs are un-American. they're teaching racial solidarity over individual rights. You know, these are the brainwashing programs. And um, eventually that, that law was defeated under a First Amendment claim. But even though the Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, ultimately, um, here we are again, you know, a decade later or so, with basically the same claim, that teaching students about the communities from which they come, the social conditions and the legal systems that structure those communities and those histories, that that is somehow um, so wrong that it should be banned, uh, First Amendment be Right,
0: yeah. And I definitely have discussed the, the effort to ban Mexican-American studies in the Tucson Unified School District and count myself very lucky to have Denise Rebel as a friend who was one of the youth organizers who chained themselves to a city council meeting so that they could let everybody know that they wanted Mexican American studies back. And so I, you know, always, that's kind of a a really big motivator in creating the podcast for me is you know creating this audio archive of all of this fierce resistance that has been occurring in the southern arizona borderlands. So thank you for really kind of wrapping that up really nicely and bringing that back home to arizona.
1: Thank you for doing it. Thank you.
0: Uh, conservatives and how they're anachronistically tying sure. critical race theory to yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, I think like these things are, you know, of course, in alignment, but it's just anachronistic. So, can you explain? I'm just going to break down why that's not exactly the case, yeah, or why it's not the case.
1: I mean, I have to start by, and again, I, I, I hesitate to use terms like conservative because. I think that that might mean something for a handful of people still.
0: Oh, yeah, maybe.
1: uh, I tend to use instead something like far right or reactionary Mm -hmm. um, because these really are kind of like almost monarchist notions. Mm. I mean, if we recall the difference between right and left, you know, in political theory, it supposedly derives from, you know, a time after the French Revolution. You're trying to reestablish your society, and and you organize. You know who who are people at this big table, and you can't put certain people next to each other, or they'll start to fight. So on the far right, you know you've got the people who are like, let's restore the king, and on the far left, you've got people who are saying, you know, not only should we have the republic, but we should socialize all property and you know kill all the nobility and what have you. So so right wing politics really seem to be continuously about autocracy. Right about a certain kind of leader who has uh, maybe a divine right or maybe just a right of brute force. And in that way, Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to think about so called conservative rhetoric that says Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, it's all the same thing. Those are bad faith arguments. So uh-huh. I used the word propaganda before. It's maybe not quite technically propaganda if it's not from the state. Of course, there are these state legislatures that are now enacting these anti-critical race theory laws. So you do have propaganda. Oh, yeah. And really, it's the relationship between you uh-huh. know, these private moral entrepreneurs who are trying to whip up this, this uh, panic about critical race theory, who then say, without any regard for historical accuracy, you know, those televised images that you've seen, that is Black Lives Matter, right? Just the most um, sensationalistic, um, violent, you know, maybe it's like dark yeah. people running around and there's fires, oh, whatever the, you know, whatever Fox News has shown you or whatever, you know, the clip is that's mimetically going through your uh-huh. your parlor or whatever. That's what Black Lives Matter means, and that's all it means. And so critical race theory is, you know, to be tarred with the same brush as that. Again, it's not really an argument. It's just sort of a claim that when repeated often enough by the various sources that, you know, an unfortunately large number of people, um imbibe for their for their media. It just is a refrain. And so then you think, oh yeah, critical race theory, you know, Black Lives Matter. If one's bad, so is the other. So I think that's actually what they're doing. I, I um I you know imagine that there's you know particular texts that one could take and deconstruct and revive. Right. But but the overall project in my opinion um seems to be very clear. And that is to make people think That the real threat comes from relatively marginalized, less powerful people in these racialized social groups so that we all forget that on January 6th of the year, a group of people, some with an express, you know, armed, like organized plan. Right to go in and maybe to capture, maybe to kill. I mean, there was a scaffold. There were plans not just against Democratic legislators, but against the Republican Mm -hmm. vice president of the United States and a large mob of people who followed that vanguard who had been rallying because the then president of the United States had Mm -hmm. told them to fight like hell and take it back and otherwise whipped them up so that there was an actual insurrection at the capital of the United States. There was a battle flag of the Confederacy that was waved there, et cetera. So, you know, this is just a moral panic intended to divert, in my opinion, the citizenry and all of our focus on the fact that we had an unprecedented, violent, Attempt to overthrow the democracy, overthrow the republic. And who was doing that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Predominantly white dudes.
0: Right. I know. I think it's so important to still bring up the January 6th insurrection because, it, it, especially with how the media cycle works, it, it just is not something that people are talking about anymore. And that is not going to resolve the issues that led to that moment. So I appreciate you
1: bringing that up. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, this is all, you know, all apart. And, um, you know, in our own, like, little busy lives, it can be hard to have the time to, to really, like, reckon with that. I mean, how do you? You know, what are you supposed to do? Like, that, so that crazy thing happened. But, you know, despite these convictions and, you know, continuing prosecutions and investigations, there is still so much that the public does not know. For example, um, why uh, the federal agents, you know, were not allowed to bring in the National Guard so kindly. There are real investigations that need to be done. Right. You know, the Republican senators refusal to conduct a bipartisan commission on this issue, um, you know, so that instead they can get um, hopefully, control the Senate. Back suggests how high and how deep a certain kind of rot is uh, metastasized throughout the Republic. And so, yeah, you know, you you uh, you try to distract people's attention by asking them to pay attention to something called critical race theory that you don't even, you know, care to describe with any accuracy.
0: Well, Mark thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, this is all that I wanted to talk about today. Is there anything that we didn't get to discuss that you wanted to talk about today?
1: Well, I just want to say I really appreciate this opportunity to you know, talk with um, your community and yourself. And there are so many resources available. I know that everyone's busy and focused on their own things, but, you know, latcrit.org, is a really good location on the web where you can access a lot of the documents that underlie this. I mean, unfortunately, I don't interact with social media very much for purposes of trying to uh, avoid, you know, a little bit of the surveillance state that I can. But, mm-hmm.
0: I appreciate but you know, that there really good.
1: are many, many texts that are available online. Um, I'm sure there are discourse communities that you're aware of but um, and engage with. You, I mean, the collective you, know, the voice, um, but mm-hmm. but I would hope that that as you can, you know, you would you would take a look and see some of um, some of what we're doing up here in um, in you know the law schools and, uh, and these various movements to try to bring forward this transformative promise of the law.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I can link the the website in the show notes so people can take a look.
1: All right. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona, an abolitionist podcast that follows me, Yvette Porja, on my journey as a movement lawyer in Southern Arizona, audio archiving the fierce resistance occurring in these borderlands. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash radio cachimbona. For 5 or $10 a month, you can get access to the Lit Review, which is a patron only segment that I do where I invite Fierce Women of Color onto the podcast to discuss timely texts. I most recently had Prisca Lorcas of Latino Rebels on and to discuss Insurgent Aesthetics, Security and the Queer Life of the Forever War by Rona Capadia. You can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and I know that things are tough for many right now and you all work so hard for your money and might not be able to help out right now monetarily but you still want to support the podcast you can do so by leaving an apple podcast review it's actually a super meaningful way to help my podcast gain visibility which is kind of the next goal that I'm I'm really striving for that's what I'm focusing on right now so Thank you so much to everybody who's given a rating and review, and I will see you all next week. Thanks. Bye.